brother. Bless you. Take your time. Well, let's give the Lord a good hand here today. What? Come on, don't you love the Lord? Hadn't he been good to us? What a great God we serve. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Well, praise the Lord, everybody. We are honored to be here. If you have your Bibles, turn in the book of Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to look at verse 13. While you're turning, I want to say what an honor and privilege it is to be here and how much I do very, very much so appreciate uh, pastor, pastors, uh, bookers, <laughs> and how much, uh, how kind they are. They're very gracious, and I love this church, love them very, very much. They're very good to us, and uh, you know, I was thinking this morning, you know, if you, if you uh, the bookers are such unique people, if you can't love them, you're probably a good candidate for the altar if you can't love the bookers. I'll tell you what, uh, they are absolutely phenomenal people, and we love them very, very much. And uh, so good to see my good friend, Brother Brown, Pastor Brown, and, and uh, these are fine, fine folks, and uh, Sister Brown made sure that I was up to snuff on my Greek when I walked in, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we're ready to roll. But uh, Matthew chapter 16, now I'm just going to talk to us this morning, and uh uh, you know, we'll see where it goes, but I told Brother Booker, I realize this is a, a teaching slot, so I will try to keep the spitting and sputtering down to a minimal decibel uh, this morning. <laughs> but uh, I do want to talk to us about a little something here this morning. <laughs> Let's look at Matthew 16 and 13. Bible said, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? I'm interested in who you think I am. And Simon Peter answered, imagine that, but Simon Peter spoke up and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this rather revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. Seizing on verse 13 again, or rather, excuse me, verse 15. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And I want to uh, talk to us here today from a rhetorical thought. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? God bless you and be seated. When you uh, read to, when you read um, the gospel writers, it's very enlightening. Whenever you look at all of the, the, gospel, uh, the gospel writers, the various angles that they have, etc., etc., uh, it, it really opens up and enlightens a little bit better to the, to the scriptures. For example, uh, Matthew, in our text that we read this morning, uh, Matthew is a tax collector, and so Matthew is concerned about money. You're, you're going to read in his, in his gospel where he mentions the word talents uh, 15 times. And, and whenever you read about someone 
uh, uh, time to pay taxes, and they're going to find a, a coin in a, in a fish's mouth. Where do you think you're going to read about that at? You're going to read about that in Matthew. He's going to make sure them taxes are paid, you see. Uh, Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than the other uh, gospel writers by far because his audience is a Jewish audience. And, and so he, he is writing to vindicate that Christ Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah who is to come. And so 129 times you'll find that, that Matthew quotes the Old Testament. In tracing the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he, he traces his genealogy back uh, to Abraham. And he stops with Abraham because knowing and understanding that the Jewish people uh, would, would accept it if he stops at Abraham, showing that he is the promised seed uh, to descend down through the lineage of Abraham. When you come to Luke, uh, it's, it's possible, I wouldn't make a doctrine out of it, but it's possible that Luke uh, was dictated by the Apostle Paul. In other words, it's very possible that uh, Luke was the Emmaus, they called it, a scribe uh, acting for the Apostle Paul. Scholars debate on this back and forth. I would not make a doctrine out of it, but we do know that Luke and Paul were running buddies, so it does make great sense. Uh, Dr. Uh, Luke is a, he's a people person. He's, he's very meticulous. He's very detailed. He's very in-depth. Uh, whenever you read about a, 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 a beggar named Lazarus that was laid at, at the gate, uh, you're going to find in Luke that he throws in there that he was full of sores. Uh, this is Dr. Luke. You see, he attends to this. Whenever you read about uh, uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're going to find that in Luke that he records that Jesus' sweat became as drops of, of, of great blood, thrombos hematos, is where we get the word thromba, thrombos. And so this is Luke. He's very attent to detail. Whenever you read about the man with the withered hand, in Luke, Luke is going to identify it as his right hand, whereas the other writers just say that there was a man with a, a, a withered hand, but there's a message in that his right hand power had withered up. And, and, and so Luke is very attent to detail. There is 18 parables in the Gospel of Luke that you will not read in any of the other Gospel writers. Now, Luke's audience is a Gentile audience, and so Luke will trace the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He does not stop at Abraham, but he goes all the way back to Adam, uh, demonstrating that Christ is not only the Savior of the Jewish people, but he's also the Savior of the whole human race. Uh, the, the historians and the early church fathers will quote Luke far more than they do the other, the, the other writers. Now, when you come to the Gospel of Mark, it's very, very probable, yea, if not certain, that, that, that the Gospel of Mark was dictated uh, by the Apostle Peter. The writer, uh, early historian Papias, wrote in 110 A.D., and he informs us that Mark recorded his gospel at the dictation of the Apostle Peter. And you see Peter's demeanor and character all through the gospel of Mark. For example, we know Peter's very impetuous. He's very quick to act and think later. Uh, uh, we, we read 42 times in the gospel of Mark, hurry up adverbs such as immediately and straightway. This happened and that happened. The gospel of Mark is the shortest of all the other Gospels. Why? That's Peter's, that's Peter's mentality. Let's just get this show on the road. Let's get with the action and, and get out of here.
here. Uh, Matthew and Mark use, uh, rather Matthew and Luke use Mark as their template, as, as what they drew from in their narrative. 90% of Mark is found in the Gospel of Matthew. 53% of Mark is found in the Gospel of Luke. In Matthew and Luke, you, 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 kinda, you go to like chapter 3, I think it is, before you find any miracles taking place, before there's any, any real action going on. But, but, but in Mark, you find three miracles in the first chapter. That's Peter. Peter wants to hurry up and get on with it, you see. Uh, when we come to the Gospel of John, uh, John is writing an entire, an entire different agenda. He has a whole different agenda. John's gospel covers the final 20 days of the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, 92% of the gospel of John is very exclusive. It's unique that you don't find anywhere else. Uh, John does not deal with the birth of Jesus Christ. He leaves that to the other gospel writers. He says nothing about the wise man. He says nothing about the manger scene. He says nothing about the angels. Uh, John is a very humble man. You won't find that John mentions his name in any of his writing. You won't find his name mentioned in his gospel, not in 1 John, not in 2 John, not in 3 John. John's not sold on his own name, but he's sold on the name that's above every name and the name of Jesus Christ. And so uh, a false doctrine is storming the church during the time of, of the writing of John, who probably wrote his, his, his gospel. Uh, text critics used to say around 90 A.D., but, but now the more earlier the papyri that we're finding from Alexandria and that area, uh, now we, we realize that most likely he wrote his gospel somewhere between 60 at the very latest, 70 A.D. And, and it is at this time that false doctrine is... Is beginning to storm the church. Uh, ancient heresy by the call that was called Gnosticism is, is storming the church. In particular, a subset of, of Gnosticism called Docetism, which said that Jesus Christ only appeared to have a physical body, but not that he literally had one, but he just only appeared. See, they, they were heavily influenced by the, 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 the writings and the thinking of Plato. And, and, and the Grecian philosophers and the Grecian philosophers reasoned that, that everything in the spirit realm was, was, was pure and clean. But anything that was in the physical realm was impure and had been tinged by sinful hands. And so what do we do with the physical body of Christ if that be the case? And so they said, well, he only appeared to have a physical body. And they would use scriptures such as when Jesus would, would enter into the door without opening it. He would just walk through the door, not realizing that this is his post-resurrection glorified body in which he does that. We don't find him doing that prior to his glorification. And, and, and so John picks up the pen and he does not address all these other issues that have already been addressed to by the other gospel writers. But he just picks up the pen. He does not reach back to Abraham. He does not reach back to Adam. But he just picks up the pen and he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is addressing 
docetism and Gnosticism that said that Jesus only appeared to have flesh. No, he was saying he was full God and he was full man at the same time. I'm telling you, this Bible is a marvelous book that we read out of and that we base our lives around. And so in Matthew, Jesus says, well, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And, and, and as I read that one day, I, I realized, you know, he, he gets various answers. He, he, he gets various opinions as to who he is. Uh, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're Elias. Some say this, that. And, and you know, it's not really that different today now, is it? You still get varied opinions when you ask somebody, who is Jesus Christ? It just all depends on who you're talking to. And, 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 and so Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he's very interested in who we think that he is. And, and, and so I, uh, I heard a, I heard a, of course I didn't see it obviously, but I, I heard that some years ago, many years ago now, the late talk show host, Merv Griffin, made this statement. He said, he said, I would serve the Christian's God. He said, but I refuse to serve a God that sent his own boy from heaven to do his own dirty work. Now, we can say that's crazy. That ain't so crazy when you think about it. Uh, some, some years ago, I was in a Bible bookstore and, and, uh, down in Mississippi, and I was, uh, I was just walking around there and, and, and kind of reading, pilfering through some books and so forth. And I heard a, I heard a man... Uh, telling someone that he was in seminary at the time down in New Orleans and, and that he was, uh, you know, studying and, and all this young man. And, and uh, so, man, I, I'm telling you, I heard that. And I said, man, I have got to get in there. <laughs> I have got to talk to this cat. And, and so I, uh, I finally, I just, I just approached him. And, and, and about, about an hour and a half later, the conversation had moved from the, from, from, from the Bible bookstore out in the parking lot. And we was having a big, long discussion about who Jesus Christ is and the plan of salvation and, and so forth. Well, a couple of years later, I was uh, pastoring in, in Mississippi. And my wife and I were at her her, um, her family reunion, and I saw this guy across the hall. And I said, oh, boy, here we go. And uh, so, he, so he, 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 about, about 30 minutes later, he comes to me, and, and he said, hey, man, he said, you, uh, you, you remember me? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember you. I said, how, how you doing? He said, well, I'm doing all right. And we got to talking a little bit, and he said, you know, he said, do you remember that discussion we had? I said, oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I'm just waiting for it, you know. And he said, uh, he said, well, he said, I want to tell you something. He said, I was taking Old Testament class at that time. He said, and after that class, he said, I went back to class. He said, or rather, after that debate we had, he said, well, I went back to class. He said, and my Old Testament professor stood up and made this statement. He said, you cannot use the Old Testament to prove the doctrine of the Trinity. And there's old Sammy Sausage sitting there with all this work, <laughs> working on his mind and working in his mind. And all that. He sits there and he hears that and he says, well, my God, if we can't use the Old Testament to use, prove the doctrine of the Trinity and the Old Testament comprises 70% of the Bible as a whole, then how in the world can I believe in the doctrine of the Trinity? And this is working on him, you know, and, and, and that professor didn't know it, but you can't prove it in the New Testament either, <laughs> I'll tell you. But, but, and so, 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 so he told me, he said, I want to tell you something, man. He said, he said, that discussion that we had really, really helped me. He said, I want to tell you something. He said, I no longer believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. He said, I now baptize in Jesus' name. He said, I now believe in the absolute oneness of the Godhead. 
I'll tell you, there's a lot of people out there that we need to take the truth to, and, and, and it's our responsibility to make sure they realize who Jesus Christ is. And, 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 and so, uh, some will tell you that Jesus is only the Son of God. They're called uh, Socinians or Christadelphians or Arians, and then some will tell you that Jesus is the second person of the blessed Holy Trinity. Now let me say that the people, we absolutely love the people. But we do need to know the doctrine if we're going to be saved. Said we all, let me say that again. We absolutely have no problem with any people. We love all mankind. Amen. But we do need to know the doctrine if we're going to make it to heaven. And, and, and so Jesus says that we should believe on him as the scriptures have said. And, and over and over you would read that the, that the New Testament writers would propound a doctrine and they would say, for it is written. They, they base their doctrine on what was written in the word of God. Jesus said, the words that I have spoken, the same will judge a man at the last day. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. John said he saw the, the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened and every man and was judged out of them according to their deeds. The Greek noun for books is biblon. It's where we get the word Bible. The books of the Bible are going to be opened. And that's what we're going to be judged by in eternity. We won't be judged by the counsels of men. We won't be judged by Nicaea. We won't be judged by Chalcedon. We won't be judged by Ravenna. We won't be judged by Constantinople. We'll be judged by the word of God in eternity. And so... When we speak, and let me say, uh, we, I am not afraid of Father, Son, Holy Spirit language. We believe in the Father, we believe in the Son, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. In fact, and this may really tighten things up, but I'm not afraid to say that there is a distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The problem comes in when you tell me we've got God the Father over here, God the Son right here, and God the Holy Spirit right here. Three divine individuals who can interact with one another just like us three up here can interact with one another. Oh yeah, I've got an issue with that. I don't find that in the Scriptures nowhere. And we're to believe on Jesus as the Scriptures have said. And so when we talk about the Father, and when the Bible speaks of the Father, this is speaking of God transcendent. The one God of the Bible who identifies himself with no less than 9,000 singular personal pronouns under the Old Testament. This same God crossed the line and became flesh. And that is the Son of God. God, rather Father, God transcendent. External to the incarnation. Son is God descendant. God who became a man within the self-confined limitations of the incarnation. Holy Spirit is God imminent. The one God of the Bible who, who, who moves upon his people of his creation. Notice when Samson picked up the jawbone of a donkey. Does not say that the father moved upon him. But it says the spirit moved upon him. Because the role of the spirit. Spirit is spiritual activity. We do not teach that he is an impersonal force as some do. We don't say that at all. But we say he is the same God of the Bible who identified himself with 9,000 pronouns. He moves upon his creation. In Acts 2, it didn't say the Father filled them. It said the Spirit filled them. This is not a third person of the Trinity. This is the one God in spiritual activity empowering himself and rather empowering mankind to go out and be witnesses unto him. 
And so let me tell you that, that you have to, you have to understand the Old Testament before you get to the, the New Testament. You know, I, I'm not a carpenter, but I, I'm pretty sure that when they built this building, they didn't start with the roof and work down. That's a pretty safe assumption. Uh, you, you know, nobody learns calculus before they learn arithmetic. Nobody learns uh, uh, Shakespeare before they learn basic English. Uh, so, so it's the principle of education that later revelation is built upon former education. It's layered. It works. It's progressive. It works from foundation upward. And so, again, the, the, the New Testament writers, uh, it, it's what's called... Uh, big word here. It's what's called epistemologic makeup. Epistemology is the study of knowledge, the source of knowledge. The source of the New Testament writer's knowledge was the Old Testament canon uh, written by Jewish hands, uh, written by Hebrew Jews uh, who knew nothing of a multi-person divinity whatsoever. So when you cross over into Matthew and you read that they say that he is God with us, uh, that's not a second person in the Godhead. Uh, that's all the fullness of the Godhead. That's everything. And so you have to understand the Old Testament layer before you understand. the. See, see, the Old Testament prepares us to understand the message of the New Testament. In every discussion I've had, and I've had tons of them, okay? In every discussion I've had, they always start with the New Testament. Always. When you're discussing our doctrinal distinctives. What about the baptism of Christ? What about John 17, 5? What about Colossians 1, 16? Hebrews 1, 8? They're always in the Old Testament. A New Testament first. See, the debate's over with before we even got started. Because you have to start with the foundation and then build upon that and then come to the New Testament. If you want Bible for that, Ephesians 2 and 20 says that we are built or founded upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The Old Testament prophets. They had the same foundation. The Hebrew Jewish prophets did not teach there was one person in the Godhead and then the uh, New Testament, by the way, Jewish apostles uh, did not teach that there was two more persons in the Godhead. They had the same foundation, not different foundations. And so what you'll find when you look at the Old Testament, you will find that whatever is said of Yahweh, or would later become known as Jehovah, what you'll find of, of Yahweh is fulfilled in Jesus Christ of the New Testament. For example, Isaiah 44, Yahweh says, I am the first and I am the last beside me, singular personal pronoun. There is no other. One person says there is no one else other than me. I'm going to believe the word of God uh, here this morning. And, and, and then you turn to Revelation 1.8 and it, Jesus Christ says, I am the first and I am the last. And the Greek text says, the almighty God. And, and, and so there can't be two first and last and there can't be two almighty gods, folks. Uh, there's still just one God. And his name is Jesus Christ. So Isaiah 43, one person beside me, singular personal pronoun. Yahweh says there is no savior. You turn to Titus 2 and 13. And it says that we're looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 45, Yahweh, the Bible says that under Yahweh, every knee shall bow and every tongue is going to confess. Well, turn to the Carmen Christi in Philippians chapter. 
chapter 2 and you're going to find that at the mention of the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. Isaiah 35, or rather Isaiah 40, said, uh, uh, Yahweh says, beside me, singular personal pronoun, there is no God. First John 5 and 20 said that Jesus Christ, uh, he is the true God and eternal life. Isaiah 35 uh, said that your God, the Jewish God, shall come and then shall the lame leap up and down. Then shall the deaf ears be unstopped. Then shall the blind eyes be opened. And Jesus Christ fulfilled that every day that he was here. And the Bible said it's going to be the Jews' God that come. The Jewish people have never worshipped a triune deity. And Jesus said the Jews know what they worship. How could they know what they worship if they've never worshipped a trinity? Oh, I'm glad this morning we can know who Jesus Christ is. Malachi 2 and 10. Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Uh, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and all this will be taken. I'll be satisfied. Uh, Philip, uh, have I been with you all this time, and you're still asking silly questions? Can I put my part in there? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? For the Father that dwells in me, he's doing the work. Isaiah 44 and 24, Yahweh created all things alone and by himself. I was looking at the force of the Hebrew verbs the other day. And those Hebrew uh, verbs, I won't get too much into this, but the Hebrew verb for created is what's called a masculine singular absolute. What that means is absolutely masculine, meaning person singular. Absolute one person created. Uh, that's what the tense of the verb means. Uh, and, and so we know it already. Isaiah 9 and 6, unto us a, 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 a child is born unto us a son is given and his name shall be called counselor uh, wonderful or rather wonderful counselor mighty God prince of peace the everlasting the Greek the Hebrew is actually the eternal father and so when you turn to the book of Mark and you read in Mark when a scribe says to Jesus which is the first of all the commandments the again the Greek is what is the most important of all the commandments and Jesus says to him, the first of all the commandments, the, the most important of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. What I want to say is, uh, if that is the most commandment or highest commandment in the Bible, why don't we hear more one God preaching uh, than what we hear in these days? Uh, oh, come on now. I'm just telling you, I'm going to preach the most important commandment that's in the Bible. There's a place where Jesus... And I think it's John 21, after he rises from the dead, he, he, he walks alongside the beach, you know the story, and he says to them, cast, your, cast your, your net on the right side of the boat, power, and so they do, and, and they, they, they pull up, and they count the fish, and it was 153, I think it was. Uh, now, there, there is a teaching that is called gematria. Gematria is the numerical value of the alphabet and conversely the alphabet has numerical value as well they they interchange it's like this in three languages hebrew latin and greek now the the jewish kabbalists have come along they have kind of perverted that and they and and they find hidden things that's not there and and, and all that but 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 perversion is never a, an overriding of the real for every real there is a false 
For every real tongue talking, there's a false tongue talking. For every real baptismal formula, there's a false baptismal formula. For every real view of the Godhead, there's a false view of the Godhead. And there's still real numerology in the Bible. Uh, God is a God of numbers. You go dip seven times, Naaman. Seven churches in the body, the book of Revelations. And, and, and so God is a God of numbers. And whenever you look at the gematria, uh, and this is fact, you look at the gematria of 153, where it says, well, after they count the fish, and Jesus in his re- post-resurrection form, and you look at, and yet they count 153. When you look at the alphabetical value of that prior to the Roman numeral system, and you look at the alphabetical value of 153 in either Hebrew or Aramaic, you cross it over, and it literally spells, I am the Almighty God. The next verse said, and they durst not ask who he was, knowing that it was the Lord. They knew who he was whenever they saw that. Brother Conroy and I were talking about that some time back. He said, oh, absolutely that means that. He said, it certainly does. I am the almighty God. There, there is a verse in the Bible, and we know the story very well, where the woman touches the hem of his garment. And, and, and we, in our Western thinking... We oftentimes think of this as a broad uh, band, like at the bottom of a robe or something. But that's not at all what, what Jesus was wearing. That's not at all what she touched. If you, if you look at what's going on here, uh, here Jesus is on the way to heal Jairus' daughter, a Jewish people. And in comes this, this, this lady, and she touches the hem of his garment with the issue of blood. G- Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. And this lady has had this issue for 12 years. This lady contracts that disease around the same time that that child was born. And here, here comes this lady. Now, I personally believe this is a Gentile lady. Uh, in fact, Eusebius wrote uh, in around 300 AD, and he said that she was a Gentile from Caesarea Philippi. And, and, and here's why. A Jewish lady would be well familiar with the Levitical law that said that uh, if you have an issue of blood, no woman that has an issue of blood, whatever she touches shall become unclean. She is to remain outside the camp. Uh, so it's not very likely she's going to come around those Jews and, 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 and the Pharisees and lawyers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, like that. But a, a Gentile unfamiliar with the law would. And so, and so get the picture. Jesus is on the way to go touch the Jewish people. But this Gentile lady makes inroads on the inside and she touches the hem of his garment so that simultaneously Jesus Christ is reaching for the Jewish people and reaching for the Gentile people at the same time. No wonder Galatians 3.28 would say there is neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female nor slave nor free for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus is healing the Jewish people and healing the Gentiles people at the same time and so so the bible says that she touched the hem everybody said him touched the hem of his garment if you look up the hebrew excuse me the greek noun for him it literally means fringes now, i know you can't see this there but literally means fringes she touched the fringes of his prayer shawl Jesus was, a, was an orthodox, observant Jew when he wanted to be. I mean, he's the God of the Jews. He can do what he wants to do. And so he, uh, it, it's, for, it's well known that the Jewish people wore, still to this day, they wear the, 
Hebrew, the, uh, the Jewish prayer shawl. And so that's what the noun means. She touched the, the, the fringes of his, of his prayer shawl. Now, again, gematria, if you look at, and I know there's no way you're going to see this out there, but uh, perhaps afterwards I can show you a little closer. You have four blue windings here. Now, what they do is they take eight knots, they tie it into, or rather, eight strings, they tie it into five knots. Then you have blue segments of windings that are going down all the way through. And the windings gain as they go down. You have seven, you have eight, you have 11, and you have 13 coming to 39. And so this, this lady touches the hem. She touches the fringes of his prayer shawl. Now, again, looking at Gematria, and I've talked to a pastor, a, a Messianic Jewish lady. She knew this. I talked to a rab, talked to two different rabbis, and they were uh, familiar with this, Messianic rabbis. The, uh, God, again, God is a God of numbers. They take eight strands. Uh, the number eight in the Bible is the number of new beginnings. For example, uh, they were circumcised on the eighth day. Entering into a new beginning. Noah uh, was, uh, was a new creation after the, the flood. And there were eight souls to bring in that new creation. The first day of the week is the eighth day. It's a new beginning. It's a new week. David was a new king. And he was the eighth son of Jesse. Solomon was then a new king. And he was the eighth son of David. There are eight resurrection stories in the Bible other than Jesus Christ. Three in the Old Testament, three in the Gospels, and two in the book of Acts. Eight New Testament writers. Again, eight is always connected with a new beginning. The number five in the Bible is the number of grace. Uh, God brought living things, life, grace, into existence on the fifth day. Abraham did absolutely nothing to merit the favor of God. He was the recipient of God's sovereign grace. And yet God took you the fifth letter of his Hebrew name and put in the fifth letter from the Hebrew alphabet and the gematria of that is five. Abraham's name is, is, is stamped with the number five. Five loaves fed 5,000. Again, grace. A five-fold ministry, as Elder Booker was speaking about uh, earlier, given to me. Again, God's grace. So eight is the number of new beginning. Five is the number of grace. If you look at the, I know you can't see it out there, but these windings, when you cross over the first two sets, seven and eight, it equals, or it says, Yah in gematria. Yah. That's the alphabetical value. If you look at the third set of windings, 11, it says ve. You look at the last set of windings, it's 13. It's where we get the word ekad, and it is one. It literally says Yahweh is one. And so they take the eight sets, or rather the eight strands, tie it into five knots, and then it comes down to 39 uh, of the windings, and it says Yahweh is one. What she literally touched, whenever you remove the meaning of the numerology, and you leave the meaning of it just in its state, you remove the numbers and all that, the Gentile lady literally touched a new beginning of grace when Yahweh, who is one, shed his blood with 39 stripes. That's what we as the Gentile people are tapping into whenever we come to church. Do you realize the significance and the importance of what we're doing when we come to church? We are that Gentile lady who are tapping into a new beginning of grace when we touch the hem of his garment. 
39. How many books are there of the Old Testament? 39. I want you to know he was the book of Isaiah that he picked up when he walked into the synagogue. He was the scroll of Isaiah. He was the book of Deuteronomy. He was the Old Testament. He was the word that it became flesh. The him was literally him. He was that Yahweh that had become flesh and shed his blood with 39 stripes. And so the names of the first ten men, when you look at the names of the first ten men, very enlightening. Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Hunan means sorrow. Mahaliel means blessed God. Jared means shall come down. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Lamech means the despairing. And Noah means rest and comfort. You remove the names of the first ten men in the Bible and you leave their meaning intact. It says, man appointed to mortal sorrow, the blessed God shall come down, teaching his death shall bring the despairing rest and comfort. That's what he did when he came down. He came to give us... Uh, to, and if you're here this morning and you're despairing, take heart, the King of Kings is here. And he came to give you rest. He came to... to uh, Uphold the, the, the hands that hang down. The twelve tribes of Israel foreshadow the sonship of Jesus Christ. Simeon means hearing. Judah means praise. Reuben means see a son. Gad means pierced. Issachar means he will bring reward. Naphtali means our struggle. Manasseh means forgotten. Ephraim means fruitful. Asher means happy. Dan means rule, Zebulun means reside, and Benjamin means son of the right hand. Again, you remove the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, and you leave their meaning intact. It says, hearing praise, when we see a son pierced, he will bring his reward. Our struggle shall be forgotten, we'll be fruitful and happy when we rule and reside with the son of the right hand. Aren't you looking forward to that day when we'll be able to rule and we'll be able to reside. No more sad goodbyes. No more depression. No more fear. We'll be happy when we rule with the King of Kings and our struggle shall be forgotten. And so he is God, but he's also the Son of God. He's the Son of God, but he's also the one God manifest in the flesh. There is, in Zechariah 9 and 9, we read a prophecy and it says that, Behold, your king cometh lowly, riding on a donkey and a colt. And a colt. And so, Matthew, you find that in Matthew, Matthew, again, written to the Jewish people, he's very careful to document this very well, knowing they're going to check it out to the finest minutia. And so, Matthew records that when Jesus comes in, he comes riding in on a donkey and a colt. Now, there's much, much, much debate among scholars of the of, of pronoun agreement. I'm going to get into a lot of exe- exegetical stuff here. But, 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 but I know that it says that Jesus told them, you go into another town or village, you take the donkey and the colt, and you bring them to me, tell the owner that the master has need of them. And the Bible said that whenever they brought them in, they took their clothes and put their clothes on them, donkey and colt, and placed Jesus on them. The pronoun agreement is plural. There has to be a match. That's just simple uh, grammatical fact. 
And so some scholars debate, some say that, that it doesn't mean that, they, that Jesus was placed on the donkey and the colt. Some say it just means he was put on the clothes. Well, where were the clothes? The donkey and the colt. So it doesn't, does not help very much. Some scholars say that he rode one for a while, he rode another for a while. They're not sure how it does. But, but, but we do know, we can see from the pronoun agreement that, that somehow he was connected to both of them. What is the significance of this? Well, I've been told, and it's my understanding, that, that during times of peace, during this day in the East, that whenever a, a, a king would come into a, a village or a town, that this king would ride in on the donkey and his son, who was to inherit the throne, would come riding in on the colt. But Jesus Christ comes riding in in his triumphal entry, and he's connected to both of them because he's not just father and he's not just son, but he is both. He is both the son and he is both the eternal father. And so he comes riding in connected to both of them because he is both of them. He is both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so you read, and I've got five minutes left and I'm done, but you read in in the Bible, in the book of John I think it is, that it says that Jesus is hanging on the on the cross, and, and the Jewish people say, take that down. Don't say that he, that, that, he, that he was the king of Jews. Take down that sign. But say that he said he was the king of Jews. And of course, this is where Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. And, and, but what's interesting is, if you remember, the, the Jewish people read right to left. We read left to right. By the way, uh, it's interesting that every language to the east of Jerusalem reads right to left. Every language to the west of Jerusalem reads left to right. Everything is focusing and centering and pointing back to Jerusalem because that's where it's all pointed at. That's where it's all centered at. It's all centered on the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And he was slain right in that area. And so, but when you read right right to left, you look at the lettering that was placed over Jesus. I was reading a Hebrew linguist uh, a couple of years ago, and he was pointing out, and I had heard this, and I was doing some research into this, and he pointed this out. He was actually online debating with some who said, well, no, that's not true. And he said, oh, no, it absolutely is true. And, And here's what you read. When you look reading right to left, you'll find, and the, the Jewish people were a people of acronyms. They use acronyms a lot. And, and so when you read right to left, you will see the lettering that was over the cross. The first letter, if I remember correct, was a, in English would be Y. Then the next letter was H. The next letter was V. The next letter, the first letter was H. You had Yahweh. You had the tetragrammaton that was hanging over Jesus Christ as he was hanging there. The Jewish people come by. They're well familiar with, with acronyms. They say, you take that down. You don't say that he said he was the king. That's not Yahweh hanging up there. See, they knew if that's the Messiah, then he has to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament that said he would be the mighty God, that he would be the one Yahweh. They said, you take that down. And Pilate said, oh no, what's written is written. I'm telling you, it's still written that he is the one Yahweh of the Old Testament in flesh. And so, as I close here today, in 2005, archaeologists stunned the world when they found the oldest uh, uh, church building to date. It was pre-Constantine era. It dates to around 200, I'm going to say like 250 to 300 A.D. And back, back during those days, they would dedicate a building 
usually to the one that purchased it. They would have like a, a, a little mosaic on the tile or some kind of way on the wall. They would put something, they would etch something, and, and they would dedicate the building to the one who purchased the building. Well, what's interesting about this, is, and I've read this online, they found, archaeologists found a, a, a mosaic on the tile, and it was written to the one who had purchased it. It was dedicated to the one who had purchased it. And it literally says to Hathaos Jesus Christ, to the God Jesus Christ. There was nothing there about Trinity, nothing there about Father, Son, Holy Ghost, nothing there about three persons. They just saw him as the one God of the Bible, Jesus Christ. Folks, that's who Jesus Christ is. He is the one God of the Bible. And as I close, I want to say, somebody said, well, how important is this? Well, Jesus said in John 8, 24, if you believe not that I am, and the word he is in italics, indicating that the translators added it for what's called euphemy, it, it helps it to flow better. Um, I was having a uh, dialogue, let's put it like that, with a man recently online, and, and he, said, well, he said, well, it has to be he. He said, it has to be I am he because... Because verbs have to have an object. I said, no, they absolutely do not have to have an object. A transitive verb has to have an object, but not an intransitive verb. That's, that, and this is an intransitive verb. And so Jesus says, if you believe not that I am, that's what he literally says. That's what comes out of his mouth. He says to them, if you don't believe that I am, ego I me, you shall die in your sins. And so that's why they picked up stones to stone him. Not because he was claiming to be the second person in the Trinity, but because he was claiming to be Yahweh, the one God of the Old Testament. And he said, if you don't believe that, you shall die in your sins. Folks, I want to make heaven my home, and I'm going to trust what Jesus Christ says, and I'm going to believe that he is the one Yahweh who became a man. Can we stand right now? That's all right. Before I hand this over to Pastor Booker, and when you look at the history of the doctrine of the Trinity, and, and I, don't, I don't have time to get into a, to a whole lot of this. My time is up. But Babylon worshiped many gods. We know that. But their main God, listen to me, their main God consisted of three persons bonded together in mystical unity. Well, does that sound familiar? Egypt comes along and they have the same thing. They have many gods, but their main God was Ra, Ta, and Isis. Three divine persons bonded together in mystical unity. Socrates comes along, the Grecian philosophers come along, and they begin to dance with on this. They begin to tamper with all of this. And Plato has his Timaeus, the celestial mathematics with his, with his triangle. And then a man named Justin Martyr comes along and he divides the Lagos from God, the Word from God. He seized on John 1.1b and the Word was with God, not, in, not giving the same emphasis to John 1.1c and the Word was God. The same one the Word was with was the same one the Word was. The Word was God. But Justin Martyr split the Word from God. Then Tertullian comes along, or rather Theophilus comes along in 180 AD with Trinitas. Tertullian picks that up and he begins to propagate it and to push it. Augustine comes along and really solidifies it. And the whole time the Bible says, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy after the traditions of men and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you are complete in him not them I want you glad today that we can know who Jesus Christ is who is Jesus Christ God bless you, Thank you.